Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and here I am again talking to folks about the movies we've been watching. This time, I reached out to a colleague I've wanted to chat with on the podcast for a while now, Richard Brody, an editor and critic at The New Yorker and author of Everything is Cinema, The Working Life of Jean-Luc Godard. We commiserated about not being able to see movies in theaters, and then we got into the movies, including the debut feature by Melvin Van Peebles, the story of a three-day pass, the strangely absorbing drama of extraterrestrial life, The Eleventh Green, Nat Turner, A Troublesome Property by Charles Burnett, and Top of the Heap, an extraordinary film by actor-director Christopher St. John. Let's go to the conversation. Hello, welcome to The Last Thing I Saw, a film podcast. My name is Nick Rippold. I'm an editor and critic, sometime a programmer once in a while, and I'm very fortunate and happy to be able to do that. And today, especially fortunate, because I, I don't think I've ever done a podcast with uh, our guest today. What can you say? I mean, uh, Richard Brody of The New Yorker. Uh, I, For one thing, a terrific guide right now uh, in terms of what you could watch that you have not read about elsewhere. But for a long time, you know, uh, a, a lodestar for a lot of critics and cinephiles. And also... Um, I, I definitely thought of you, Richard, as I uh, watched the strange Instagram live of Jean-Luc Godard uh, a few weeks back. Uh, but in any case, without further ado, welcome, Richard. Nick, thank you very much. Good to, good to talk with you. It's been a long time. Yes, uh, indeed, because usually, actually, we would cross paths at some screening or other, but uh, that's no longer the case. It's actually something I never thought about that uh, is really something I, I miss. Me too, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is um, social. Yes, it's exactly. Other places where um, you know critics get together, They're like you know conventions for critics. Yes, that, that's uh, that's where we can, uh, you know, the, a momentary lab for some ideas before we start writing um, and uh, contention, that sort of thing. The only thing, well, not not for for me. After a screening, I kind of put my coat over my head and flee. I want <laughs> I want to I want to talk to you and everybody else beforehand, not afterwards. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, yeah. Maybe more as repertory screenings. <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of safer ground. No, but I'm kind of the same way, actually. Definitely the hundred yard dash past the publicist. <laughs> past other critics to the elevator, for sure. Um, but uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell me a bit about what what life is like for you now in, in terms of um, movie movie watching, in terms of just what's the same for all of us is that we're all working from home in, in, in various ways. That means a number of things. Strangely, for many writers, it's not actually necessarily that different. But um, I mean, you would have gone to an office at, uh, at, at The New Yorker. Yeah, for me, things are, are, are different and similar at the same time. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to keep working despite everything that's going on and to be able to work from home just about as efficiently as as when I go into the office. I actually do a lot of my writing at home and more editing. I'm, I'm an editor as well as a writer. I edit the goings-on mm -hmm. about town movie section, and I do a lot of that editing from the office. I do more of my writing at home. Um, so now I'm doing the editing at home too. But what's peculiar is that I don't see a completely radical break in my own practice as a critic from before coronavirus and, mm -hmm. and, and now, in the sense that, you know, I sense it's, a sh you know, a complete shift in proportion. I mean, I've been paying attention to streaming and video on demand, even in print, you know, for at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, 
it seemed to me for quite a while that theatrical exhibition hasn't been serving many of the best movies properly, that the gap between the limited release and the wide release has grown ever wider and that many of the best movies play, you know, have a nominal release of one week in New York or one week in L.A. um, for the purpose of fulfilling the official requirements of getting releases and getting reviews to drive business in the direction of the video on-demand release or the streaming release. In other words, a lot of theatrical releases are fictions, fictions that serve long-standing rules on the subject of what constitutes a movie release. Right. Yeah, it's yeah, they hearken back to uh, uh, another era, really, and leading to the practice of four-walling, you know, as, as well. But it's interesting that streaming kind of has functioned as the, the, the limited release for the rest of the country, essentially, of, of a lot of movies. I mean, how does that play out with this idea of, of virtual cinema for you, uh, with, which is the brand name that they've come up with uh, for the uh, video on demand of new releases? One thing that's really useful about streaming or or virtual cinema is that in taking the place of limited release, it becomes a wide release, which is to say um, a movie that's released online is available pretty much everywhere, whereas a movie that's in you know nominal limited release is is in one theater, whereas something in virtual cinema is available you know as widely as any superhero film. In fact, more so because people, there's certainly more computers than there are multiplexes in the country. <laughs> right. But the, the other thing is that in terms of the experience of watching movies, I'm fairly agnostic on the subject of platforms, which is to say, obviously, there is a difference between watching a movie in a theater and watching a movie at home on a computer or on your television set or on your cell phone. But those differences are different for every movie. For that matter, there are such there's such wider wide range of experiences even between movie theaters. You know, Theater 80 St. Mark's Place was very different from the Ziegfeld, which was very different from when I went to see movies at the New Community Cinema in Huntington in the 70s, where um, it was a loft with folding chairs, a fold-up screen, and a 16-millimeter projector in the room. Um, <laughs> there, there's such a wide range of movie experiences and of home viewing experiences that there's no way of knowing in advance what those distinctions are going to be like. But one thing I do notice is that even for movies that are um, ostensibly intended to be, you know, primarily or, pri- or, or first of all, at least, theatrical experiences, very often I find that nonetheless, the home viewing experience is better. Um, one example is The Irishman. Hmm. You know, for me, The Irishman, which I saw, I think we were there together at opening out of the New York Film yep. Festival. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I certainly loved the movie when I saw it first time, at Alice Tully Hall. But when I saw it, Subsequently, uh, at home, hunched over in front of my computer um, on Netflix, I felt as if I were seeing it better, as if I were picking up more of what was in the movie. It was more of the perceptual range of the movie itself. And I'm not saying that Martin Scorsese necessarily intended for the movie to be seen primarily on Netflix, but that something in his aesthetic, nonetheless, regardless of what his explicit intention may have been, plays better on Netflix in terms of this movie. That's really interesting. What what would be an example of uh, some sort of effect or, or texture or detail of, of, of anything uh, like that, that that you noticed better or came out more uh, when you were watching it at home? Glances, gazes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
gazes. Um, you know, for me, the crucial moment in the in in, in the Irishman. Uh, we don't have to worry about spoilers anymore. Is when uh, <laughs> Robert De Niro glances away from Joe Pesci into camera for a second, and then right back at Joe Pesci um, in the you know more or less climactic scene where he's being ordered um, to take part in uh, in the murder. Mm-hmm. Um, I caught it in the theater. I, I certainly noticed, but watching at home, it was like a thunderclap. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I mean, glances being like a primary color for for Scorsese. I mean, not only in in the drama of individual scenes, but even just how he blocks out scenes and entire shots. So that's that's such a that makes me want to watch The Irishman again at home because I I've seen it uh, twice only, both in the theaters, um, in a theater, and when as you mentioned the second time is I guess an interesting variation in that I was stood for the entire time. Um, <laughs> I don't know where that falls in, in terms of the experience. It's the equivalent of a standing desk, I guess, but uh, yeah. it was a standing theater. Um, but uh, I, I just want to, you know, apropos of, of the effect of watching things at home, I just want to quote something from, from your piece that, uh, that was kind of a spurred me to, to, to reach out um, about the difference in the kind of intimacy of watching and how that varies depending on the movie a little. Uh, I just really love this line uh, in your New Yorker piece. The art of movies belongs not only to filmmakers addressing a crowd, but also to those who address audience members one by one. And I just love that idea of, of, of like that kind of way a movie would address you. And and in the sense of The Irishman, I mean, it is a it is a large, monumental, in, in many ways, film, and that is one way that that movie can become more more intimate and more direct to you when you're just kind of face to face for it, right up close. Well, that is the word intimacy. It, you know, intimacy and the contrast between intimacy and you know the word that um, studio executives use to describe what they look for when they want to put a film into wide release, namely theatricality. Hmm. You know, to me, there's an entire counter strain so to speak in the history of cinema that more or less resists the theatrical experience you know Brasson is a classic great example not that not that you wouldn't want to see his movies in theaters I, I certainly do but there's something about his films that seems inimical to seeing it in a in a theater or at the very least in a big theater it they reward personal close-up viewing you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, I often think of, you know, the very origins of cinema and think that if, you know, if in the 1890s um, celluloid had been cheaper than real estate, um, theatrical releases would have been an exception throughout the history of cinema. Um, mm. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I remember reading Jean-Pierre Melville's, you know, the, the book length um, interview with him, and he talks about his own primordial cinephilia. He had a 9.5 millimeter baby pate projector and he used to rent movies. You know, he'd rent mm-hmm. 9, 9.5 millimeter movies and watch them you know, basically on a wall under a table. So it was, you know, projected literally, but projected small. And what is it that's lost in the history of cinema because this intimacy has been lost? Well, I think there's an entire, an entire kind of movie that, you know, for at least half a century didn't get made. One example, you know, I thought of this while I was watching... Um, Charles Burnett's remarkable film, uh, Nat Turner, A Troublesome Property, which I highly recommend. It's streaming on Amazon and on Canopy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a real genre mashup of nonfiction, fiction, and metafiction, in which he tells not just the story of Nat Turner's life, but the story of Nat Turner's legacy and the artistic and historical transformations of the persona of Nat Turner 
since the 1830s, starting with Thomas Gray's Confessions of Nat Turner, the white lawyer who interviewed Turner in, in jail and transcribed, or at least to a certain extent transcribed, what he was told. The movie features dramatic reenactments of scenes from the many representations of Turner's life, starting with Gray, including William Styron's novel, and going through um, essays and plays in the in the 19th and 20th centuries. One of the most distinctive, one of the most moving moments in the, in, in the film is when Burnett refers to Federal Writers Project uh, interviews with people who had been born into slavery and who, you know, if they were there in the 70s, 80s, 90s, in the 1930s. Mm. Burnett stages reenactments of one of these interviews of an elderly man who had heard of Nat Turner's activities and of the rebellion from people he grew up with. But what, when I saw this, I said to myself, what a, what a loss that in the 1930s, when these interviews were being done you know, with paper and pencil, that nobody had the idea to film documentary interviews as part of the WPA hmm. with you know, people who had experienced slavery and could speak to could speak to it similarly all sorts of other documentaries didn't get made like i always wonder why somebody didn't have the great idea you know in the 1930s as soon as talking pictures came in to like essentially to open a movie studio you know in hollywood where the door would always be open and where people <laughs> could just you know walk in sit down in front of a chair and and talk right like oral histories Oral histories in the present tense. Yeah. I think that it's precisely because that kind of experience was not considered theatrical. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, I mean, it's interesting to think of the on screen interview having a starting point. And, uh, you know, obviously it did. And it wasn't yet then. <laughs> it does sound like that is a kind of. It is, a, it is a kind of almost too down-to-earth experience. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's not spectacular enough or, or, or what. But then it seems like the overcompensation in that direction was, the, you know, the, 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 the fantasy of, that the close-up provides. Right, and the sense of the general, right, exactly, the many kinds of spectacle, whether, whether the close-up or the extreme long shot that shows crowds. Right. Yeah, exactly. That the one thing, you know, on the one hand, I can, you know, it's a little bit ahistorical to say that, you know, projection, the concept of projection wasn't built into movies because, you know, in the, 19, in the 1890s already, you know, Edison's, Edison's collaborators were thinking of, were thinking of um, projection. Um, but when I think of the conceptual premise of projection, it's human scale. You know, it's the idea that a picture is taken and it's recorded on a very small piece of film, but when you play it back, you're looking at something that's, you know, as you say, the size, the size of the of the object or the the person that was that was recorded. But with the close up and with the long shot, that sense of scale is again transformed into something that's either you know bigger than life or smaller than life. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it has a. I actually think that it plays into production in a certain way at this particular moment. Because hmm. obviously, you know, movies aren't being shot because of the need for social distancing and 
And the question is, what can filmmakers do in the absence of the ability to make films? And my little hypothesis is that there's something that filmmakers can be doing that's even more important than writing their scripts for what they'll do when the lockdown ends. And that is doing their own camera work. You know, the idea of a filmmaker doing their own camera work, you know, in the age of the big studio camera, there weren't very many. Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph von Sternberg did, um, but not, not many did. But now the idea of, you know, we all have our, we all have cameras, we all have cell phones. And most filmmakers find themselves in the odd position of, you know, writers who are telling an amanuensis, you know, why did you put a preposition there? <laughs> right. Um, and I think that um, one of the reasons for this is precisely because there's a kind of spectacular experience that really only the professional cinematographer with, and the professional lighting technician is able to achieve. And I, I certainly am not looking to downplay the significance of great cinematography um, or the importance of a collaboration of directors and cinematographers. But I think that there is something really important about the idea of filmmakers reappropriating the creation of the image, so to speak, even if they may not necessarily actually do it when they're making the film for whatever reason. But the idea that, you know, a filmmaker should be making films, should be making images rather, on a you know, a daily and a frequent and a constant basis, just so that it becomes an activity that's at least as significant as writing in their conception of what it is to make a film. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that the failure, I would say failure, but the, the lack of habit of filmmakers doing so is precisely connected with the kind of, you know, spectacular, room-filling, eye-catching experience that theatrical releases tend to demand. So, so we need a, a kind of a, a return to a, maybe a, a Jonas Mikas style, uh, mm -hmm. at least keeping your own diary or journal of, of notes in the same way that, you know, a, a writer would, would be taking notes, just mm -hmm. going along on, on everything. Um, that's maybe something we can, uh, maybe we can, uh, we can organize some sort of airlift <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> you know, old Bolexes to, to uh, different filmmakers and see if they can run with it. Um, <laughs> You know, it is interesting in light of that, thinking of um, uh, another film that, you know, when we were just preparing uh, the, the 11th Green. Um, I mean, that's, you know, speaking of a individuality of, of, of vision just generally, that's a movie that somehow combines that, but also deploys some sense of historical spectacle but it's using it for such a you know um, underground subject uh, that it, it was a, a very interesting and strange uh, unidentified object for me the the movie the 11th green oh the 11th green and to me you know it, it, i think it's an amazing movie and i think it's 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 you know it's a film in two genres unto itself. The first is, you know, poly sci-fi, you know, political science fiction, science fiction that ties closely into the explicit history of politics. Um, but also, uh, you know, a genre that I've kind of, you know, been championing that I call the, the pisser. And the definition of the pisser <laughs> is something that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, namely a film that trades on the concept of extreme disparities of scale. The idea that something that happens, you know, with uh, one or two people in a room in some very intimate way proves actually to be a vast 
dramatic, emotional, and historical significance. Mm. And, and that's exactly what's happening in The Eleventh Green. It's basically the idea of an investigative journalist played by Campbell Scott, who's, um, who discovers that his father, a retired general who has just died, um, was involved in a conspiracy, a long-time conspiracy going back to the Second World War to conceal the involvement of aliens and the presence of UFOs in American and, for that matter, world political affairs. So the conceit of it gets very granular in terms of politics. You know, Dwight Eisenhower is a character. Young John F. Kennedy, a young congressman, is a character. James Forrestal, the first secretary of defense, is a character. Walter Bedell Smith, um, a member of Eisenhower's cabinet, who was also a CIA director, is a character. And interestingly, Barack Obama is an unnamed character. There's a, a presidential character who resembles Barack Obama, whose speaking style is like Obama, whose political activities resemble Obama, and who was a classmate in a Hawaii private school of this investigative journalist. So very Obama-like. Yes. And the movie makes some remarkable connections between Obama and the other historical figures in the film. Much too good to spoil. Um, but the <laughs> basic idea of this is that the material of this conspiracy, which involves you know cans of film and documents and photographs and other small-scale things prove to overturn 75 years of political assumptions and also raise questions as to the very nature of life on Earth. Like It's a howler of a science fiction film in the magnitude of the plot that it uncovers, and yet all the action is intimate. Solo, two people, three people, four people, everything takes place in a small scale. Yeah. It was completely remarkable that it, that it's it's a completely absorbing drama with completely outlandish material, and I just couldn't get over having that kind of you know meta enjoyment of it as I was watching because I I found myself you know just you know uh, deeply following the dialogue uh, about these just incredible things, and and I, and I just couldn't really believe myself <laughs> for a second. You know, I mean, because it, it's funny because it's. This it's interesting to to draw a, a, a dotted line to say you know just to take the off the shelf example any number of like science fiction or superhero blockbusters that attempt to have the same sense of momentousness and and of you know dramatic I always whenever I've seen any of the Marvel movies to me they always just feel like a series of meetings basically um, and and it, and in this case you know it this is talking about you know uh, equally uh, amazing uh, material. And and a lot of that is is the almost for me the almost hypnotic quality that Campbell Scott can have uh, in in his, in his delivery and 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 his presence, um, and reminds me how I've kind of missed him from from movies uh, lately. I, I don't really know. And yes, and having the Obama like character as well makes it all feel like it's a, a dream you're having a little bit. Um, and I also have the sense that while the actual story and what they're talking about treat all of this as actual history and actual events to some extent it also worked for me on the level of you know the inner sanctum of of, of government in the way or the inner sanctum of people making momentous decisions and, and and trying to be wise about things beyond our ken basically um and that's what the ufo material kind of stands for i mean they might as well be just deciding what to do you know 
these might as well be scenes from Failsafe or something. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, it's it's a different um, object a- at hand, um, but that's another way that it kind of it kind of uh, worked for me. Um, it's yeah, it, I'm yeah, glad. I, I agree. Yeah, very, very much so. It's very much of a story about about you know people in power and what it's like to contend with world historical events on a daily yet intimate basis. Yeah, and what the very nature of you know the competence and the responsibilities of power are. And the simulation of military talk and of the and of the way that um, you know politicians talk when they're among themselves, I found it very persuasive and very enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, sure. I you know, yes, they would they they would hang out and they would have these kind of old 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 school uh, you know r- r- rapport with each other and and drink you know making drinks for each other that sort of thing. I find it makes for a very um, you know, there's a science film, I don't want to be a sourpuss, but one film that's been, you know, talked about a lot lately that um, it's another science fiction film made on a fairly low budget is uh, The Vast of Night, which I didn't like very much. And, you know, I thought that the dialogue in the first parts were, were the dialogue was fun, uh, the eyeglasses were fun, um, <laughs> this little switchboard ballet was a lot of fun, um, but that the the stakes were actually very, very low, and that the the science fiction conceit of it was a kind of throwaway as a device to simply show off a kind of cleverness. I thought it was the exact opposite of the Eleventh Green, which mm. is a film where the actual ideas uh, are really pretty serious, and where the reconstruction is anything but simply clever. It's actually <laughs> quite substantial. I'm kind of. Uh, curious about how both of them exist now because in a way they seem like products uh, of that might have appeared in late 80s or 90s in a way of, of an earlier nostalgia and, and reflection uh, about, uh, you know, post-war era, you know, I mean, which goes in, you know, different directions, you know, whether it's I don't know the, the work of Steven Spielberg in terms of how serials, you know, intersect with you know, <laughs> post-war government power, or Craig Baldwin with you know Tribulation '99, something like that, where it's 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 putting putting that alternative world, alternate cult, underground culture to into another service of um, kind of Gonzo critique. Um, so it's interesting to see those things. Those things. Yeah, I think that, I think that it's true that 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 well, that the idea of looking back at the post-war world. Um, conspiratorially and with a kind of sense Mm of Cold War era paranoia. Um, You know, I think it's most, it's most impressive when I see it in the work of filmmakers who actually experienced the first hand, such as Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, the the film that I compare um, the 11th green to um, is, is Shutter Island. Mm -hmm. A film that for me is really very much about post-war paranoia of the um, early atomic age in the sense of, potential destruction hanging over one's heads at one's head at a given moment and the way it's reflected in the films and the pop culture of the time. Right. Yeah. No, I, I see that for sure. Yeah. And, and kind of, uh, extrapolating that to, to a more elaborate labyrinth (laughs) of, of the mind than, than ever. This is maybe another leap, but I also just want to call attention to another movie that you wrote about, which I I liked because you connected it to, uh, kind of, you describe a kind of general movement of film out of Paris or uh, coming out of Paris. Um, and, and that's the first feature by um, Melvin Van Peebles. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, story of a three-day pass. Oh, story yeah. Story of a three-day pass, which is, I think, for a lot of people would be a huge uh, discovery, you know, because he's pretty much inseparable in, in most people's mind with Sweet Sweetbacks, um, which I, which I, I, I did re- revisit um, and is still jaw-dropping in many ways. Oh, that's funny. I saw it a while ago. I've just been meaning to write about it. You know, it's a funny thing. One, there simply isn't always the context to write about something mm. that that uh, that you're enthusiastic about. Story of a three day pass. The story behind it is 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 amazing too. Um, you know how Melvin Van Peebles happened to make his first feature in France. And the answer was he couldn't get any work in Hollywood except except an offer to work as an elevator operator, which, you know, obviously was grossly offensive. Right. He'd, he'd already made a couple of short films on his own. So he um, managed to wangle his way into, you know, that he got an offer on production like as a, as a delivery person and said the hell with it and went to Europe where he worked as a journalist and then went to France and found out that there were, um, that essentially you could get your card in the Directors Guild if you were, a French writer. So he wrote novels in French and was able on the basis of his writing, including of the novel that he adapted into Story of a Three-Day Pass, um, to get essentially authorization to direct and was able to raise a small amount of money and made a film that was simultaneously an American film and a French film. Aesthetically, it's very much a French New Wave film, but the politics, the story of the film is very much a story of... of, uh, uh, American American racism, including in the military. Um, it's a story of a, of a corporal who is at a, an American army base in, in France. There still were American army bases there until the Gaulle kicked them out in 1967. And he was up for a promotion, and he the white, the white uh, officer was about to give him a promotion and gave him a three-day pass as a kind of, you know, reward in anticipation of his new job. So... The corporal goes to Paris and meets in a nightclub a young white French woman um, with whom he begins an affair. And when, I won't spoil it, but when word of this gets back to the base, things do not go well for this, for, 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 for this soldier. What's amazing about the film is that as much as it's a, a drama, it's also a film about the fantasy experience of an interracial relationship. And with a very free and imaginative style of camera work that, uh, and of script that departs from, shall we say, the physical experience of the characters into their mental lives, it depicts the fantasies and mythologies that each of the two lovers has about each other in the course of their relationship. Yeah, that's and and that's something that you know that is you know continued with with uh, sweet sweetbacks as as well in, in its, mm-hmm. its structure, um, and this one is this is on Canopy. Is that where this one is? It's on or? Canopy, and I think it's also on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure, I think right. it is, but I think you need a, you know, as with so many things on Amazon, um, you can get a, a seven day trial to right whatever additional service. Um, has the film you want? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I, I mention that is is um, not not because I'm trying to sh- shill for Amazon here or anything, but only because I I mean it's it's truly strange some of the things that I mean you know to my to my great happiness uh, bubble up in in the Amazon Prime ranks there when you just start trolling through them. Um, I mean. Uh, 
for example, this film, but also uh, Top of the Heap uh, mm-hmm. is something that I watched uh, actually last last month, but I keep I keep thinking about it. And I also bring it up just because you were talking about the um, the kind of switching between fantasy life. Obviously, you know, it's inseparable from from um, his, his experience in America as, uh, as, as, as a black police officer. It's funny you should mention, I just started watching it the other day. And this is, this now we've just hit on what the downside is, or at least what one of the peculiarities of streaming life is. When I say, I started watching it. Right. <laughs> right. Go to the movie theater. I mean, it's possible to do that too. In fact, there's this story I always like to tell about, you know, Godard, where, you know, when Pickpocket came out, the way he went to see it was, you know, he went to the theater to watch it 10 minutes at a time, you know, eight or nine times. He didn't want to actually sit through it and watch the entire thing because it's just too rich an experience to, you know, digest the entire thing in one in one sitting. And I, I find that, you know, when I watch something at home that I'm enthusiastic about, the more enthusiastic I am, the less inclined I am to watch it straight through. Right, yeah. You know, I actually really want to watch, pause, savor, think, and then go back to it. And that's exactly what I'm doing with Top of the Heap. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know about it, but I saw um, both Dave Kerr and Vadim Rizov uh, mentioned it on Twitter the other day, which is what got me to watch it. It's, it's a movie that I hope gets some more visibility. And again, just one of these things on, on, on Amazon, like the biggest of oceans that you could have, um, and it's there. Same with uh, Alan Clark's Elephant is on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case uh, you, know, you want to revisit uh, that, you wonder what uh, if uh, what a, what a kind of copycat version of it would be for you know certain contemporary <laughs> events right now, um, given that it's just this you know completely un- unadorned sequential chronicle of uh, murders yeah. of killings, yeah. um, and what that would look like if a, a version of that was made um, with 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 police killings now. Uh, that's what immediately popped in my head when I watched it uh, this time. It's also quite it's funny, the question of what, what constitutes availability, you know, when, when you say it's on Amazon Prime. You, you know, one of the things for me, you know, as a, as a, as a critic is that I, I live in fear. And what I live in fear of is missing a new release that is a really important film. You know, a film that's in, in wide release is so loudly ballyhooed that you're not going to be unaware of its existence. But there are so many films that are in in limited release that sometimes you might actually, you know, miss something. And that thing that you've missed, I mean, I, you know, I think back and realize that there are films I've, I've watched only because a, a picture in a catalog or a brochure caught my eye or because um, I see mention of it on Twitter or an incidental notification rather than an, rather than an official one. And for me, it feels like a special responsibility regarding new films because there are people whose you know, careers are uh, you know, in midstream, so to speak, or, or just beginning, mm. who, whose, whose, whose work depends on attention from, from all of us. But it's just as important or almost as important for the history of cinema, precisely because the history of cinema is so poorly defined, so narrowly canonized, so to speak. And the availability of films of the kind we're talking about that aren't necessary, that are certainly not considered mainstream or canonical now. You know, it's all the more important to kind of rebuild from the ground up the history of cinema. And it's kind of amazing that Amazon should be one of the resources in doing so. 
paradoxical, yeah. but that's how it is. Yeah, I, it requires a state of, of constant uh, vigilance, and I and I am always re- reliably um, gratified when it, when I, I I look in, you know, every couple of days and see what you're bringing to the surface. Well, I, I think we're probably uh, running toward the the end of the time. I I, I don't want to take any more uh, um, up, um, but I do have a, a kind of concluding question that I'm curious. Just speaking of uh, new releases. Uh, this is kind of the question that's going around. Maybe you already discussed it, but would you be comfortable going to into movie theaters when, when, whenever they are opening? What are your feelings on that right now? Um, I need to hear what the medical authorities have to say. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry, that's not a <laughs> no symbol intended. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm kind of uneasy about it. Um, I yeah. don't feel as if I'm in any rush to re-enter a movie theater, not least because the conditions under which we'll be asked to re-enter movie theaters are anything but stable. You know, the chains are not going to be taking patrons' temperatures, so viewers are going to be on the honor system, which is already a bad sign. Right. Mask wearing, as we know now after a large outcry last week, uh, will be mandatory, but will stop being mandatory once the viewers' seats hit the seats and they start consuming their their popcorn and their and their sodas. So nobody's going to lift the mask up to, to have a mouthful of popcorn and then pull it down again. Once right. the movie starts, people are going to be taking their masks off. So whatever measures are um, at least nominally in place are going to go out the window, except there are no windows once the movie starts. And that, to me, is one of the big considerations, that there isn't going to be an enforcement mechanism. In fact, best practices are going to, are going to vanish as soon as the lights go down. That makes me very nervous. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. I mean, it, it is, uh, right now, it, it, it is a nerve-wracking um, prospect. And, and it does, yeah, the enforcement, I don't see how that's, possible and it's hard to see um how that will play out in, in a way that'll be safe for for everyone involved i mean it's it then also adds an added uh, level of anxiety about missing out on, on on something in the sense that you have to actually risk your life if you want to catch um certain things i think it's pretty horrible actually yeah. i mean i think it's pretty you know i think that the idea of turning the public into guinea pigs for the sake of the movie industry is actually pretty horrible well, it's it's as it's as bullheaded as 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 the rest of the the, the rollout, the rush to you know through the phases uh, that, that are going on. It's uh, not not a pretty prospect. You know what's going to happen, right? Is that I mean, I what's going to happen? One should never predict uh, with with any degree of confidence. If there's one thing that you know, one phrase that should be gone from our vocabulary forever, it's the foreseeable future. So people will be going to theaters, however many go will go, and a week or two later. We'll see the numbers. Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I truly hope that the results are good. Um, you know, nothing would be, you know, nothing would be better than to know that the rate of transmission is drastically decreasing and that, you know, something like uh, medical normalcy is returning. But so far, other indoor activities, such as, you know, restaurants, uh, are not providing any confidence that that's going to be the case so soon yeah uh, it's 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 kind of a grotesque thing to think of 
people looking, when you say look at the numbers, I think of people checking the box office and checking the number of infections and then <laughs> weighing the two. Um, but at a certain yeah. level, that's kind of what might be happening. Um, I don't know. We need an abundance of caution. It was yeah. the phrase I remember when the closures first start happening. Let's let's continue the abundance of caution. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you again, Nick, when uh, when seeing people again becomes a thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely, Richard. <laughs> Likewise. And thank you again for taking the time to talk and um, look forward to looking forward to continuing to reading you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Okay. It's been too long. Okay. Take care, thank Nick. You. Take care. Thanks very Bye-bye. much.